Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
A teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome back to the Special Education Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow, and I'm so happy you're here. Friends, happy anniversary. One year ago this week, I started Ashley Barlow Company. We are on episode number 53 of the podcast. Holy cow, we made it to a year. This has been such an absolute honor and pleasure. I have enjoyed getting to meet so many of you. I love it when you reach out. I love it when you send feedback. I have so enjoyed interacting with some of you in the special education and advocacy lab. I really look forward to bringing you the ABC course, which is going to train people to be paid special education advocates that's coming in October. And I just have absolutely loved this company. Yes, it's been crazy managing a law firm, practicing law, and also starting a business while homeschooling my child. Um, but holy cow, has this been ever so rewarding. I wanted to reward you. I wanted to treat you for our anniversary. And so I really thought hard about how I was going to plan the podcast um, as a little celebration. And what I came down to was what we really need is we need some self-care, but we need it in a way that also gets stuff done. And so I thought, gosh, who could I bring on that will help my audience to learn more and to be more effective and more efficient? And I immediately thought of Tina B. Tina Bove is a life coach, and she works a lot with parents of children that have disabilities. Um, she is a parent in our community herself, and I absolutely love what she puts out on Instagram. And so I contacted her and said, hey, could you do a series for my audience for my anniversary? And she graciously accepted. So. Here we go with Tina B. I wanna tell you a little bit about her. Tina Bove is a life coach and an inclusion advocate. She is an athlete herself and takes so much joy in coaching her high school athletes, parents of children with disabilities, and her own children. Tina's journey in advocacy began when her daughter, Noelle, was born with muscular dystrophy. Tina utilized the skills and traits she had developed as an athlete to advocate for Noelle in her first few weeks of life, honing them as she and Noelle grew up together. Tina lives in Colorado with her big, beautiful, blended family. She sells beautifully created merchandise over at Be Kind, Live Kind, and I will give the link to her shop in my show notes. And she promotes inclusive practices and has lots of, lots of coaching strategies on Instagram over at Tina B underscore disability inclusion ed. I'll give you that handle as well in the show notes. Enjoy. This is a three-part series, part one coming up. Hi, Tina. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. 
Oh, thank you for joining me. You are such a light. You're one of my favorite friends on Instagram. I um, actually find myself searching for you to get updates on things or to see what you're up to. So um, I'm really excited for you to share both your story and your professional expertise with my audience. Um, why don't we go ahead and get started with an introduction? So just tell us about yourself, about your family, your passion for advocacy. All right. Yes. Yeah, so I am Tina B. Uh, my last name's Bove, which is a little tricky. So that's why I go by Tina B makes it easier. Uh, my husband, Dustin, and I have been married for almost 12 years and we're a blended family. So when we met, we had, I had Noelle who um, is diagnosed with muscular dystrophy. Um, she was two at the time and he had two kiddos who were two and four. And we, um, you know, became a, uh, an instant family, basically. And um, then we have had two kiddos together. So Bo and Macy, uh, we had Macy seven years um, after, I had Macy seven years after I had Noelle. Um, and yeah, we're just a very high energy family. We're always doing fun things, crazy adventures. We have... Um, taken our daughter, Noelle, who's in a wheelchair, I, I say to um, the tops of mountains and to oceans, because we really just, sometimes maybe we're a little on the crazy side, but that's okay. Um, we just, we love to do anything fun and we try to not let her disability limit us in the things we can do um, as a family. And I have been um, obviously in the disability community, I would say, since Noelle was born um, and she'll be 15 this year. So it's been 15 years for me, uh, kind of walking this journey and, and on this path. So. So cool. And there's so much to learn from you through your journey. I know you have learned a lot um, because I have followed along with that on social media. Um, what we really want to talk about in this series with you is um, we want to get some good information from you because you, you are a life coach. And um, I think a lot of my audience members might actually be interested in doing that themselves because as we experience life and life builds perspective in us, I think we as parents and people that love people with disabilities um, have a lot to share. Um, and that might be something that people are interested in. And I also um, know that I myself and certainly a lot of my audience members have a lot to learn. Um, so we're going to get to that. Um, but first, I wanted to talk about kind of um, your story with Noelle, Noelle's birth story, how you kind of came to be this advocate. So why don't you tell us about um, Noelle's birth? Yes, and sorry if you hear, um, you know, trucks or cars in the background. I'm actually at a local coffee shop that didn't open yet, and so I'm sitting in the courtyard, and there's a lot of motorcycles <laughs> driving past, but that's okay. Um, I, haven't, so, I haven't heard one motorcycle, and that's great. Yeah, well, and that's kind of the goal here is that people <laughs> feel like they're sitting outside at a coffee shop with us <laughs> hanging out. So it's yes, good. Perfect. All right, I'm glad you haven't heard it yet. So yeah, um, so actually. Noelle's birth story is a little crazy. I was actually running um, college track when I found out I was pregnant with Noelle. Um, I was in uh, not a very great relationship and it actually track was kind of what um, I do think was going to save me from that. Uh, but I ended up finding out that I was pregnant. So 
I um, had to stop running track and I um, continued in this not great relationship because really at the time I didn't know what else um, to do. And when I was pregnant with Noelle, I never knew that anything was wrong because she was my first baby. So I didn't have anything to compare it to. Um, I did at one point, uh, I wasn't feeling her move. So I went in to you know get a checkup and they hooked me up to the monitors and they could hear all of her movements. So they were like, well, that's a movement and that's a movement. And so I guess I just thought, you know, okay, new mom, don't know what this feels like. When really, um, had I have had another child first, I would have known that Noelle was just very weak and not really kicking or moving. It felt like indigestion, really. It didn't feel like um, mm -hmm. a baby kicking. Uh, but it wasn't until she was born that I knew that something was wrong. And, you know, I always say, um, I used to watch the show Bringing Home Baby on TLC, because um, that's what you do when, you know, when you're pregnant, you watch baby shows. And uh, so I was like ready for the, you know, when they pull, when the baby comes out and then the, the room erupts with all of this energy and excitement. Well, when Noelle was born and she was born through C-section, when she was born, the room was silent. And like, that's never a good thing. You know, you're like, what's happening? How come the baby's not crying? Nobody's talking. Um, so it was from the beginning, I knew that something was wrong. And we didn't know uh, for the first few weeks if it was just a rough delivery or what. Um, but innately, I kind of knew in my spirit that there was something. Um, and I went back to the TLC shows and was like, did anybody's baby like, you know, what were they born like her? And you're just always searching for somebody else who, whose story is similar to yours. And I never found that. Uh, but Noelle was diagnosed at five months uh, with muscular dystrophy. And the reason she got that diagnosis so young was she needed a feeding tube. Uh, she was unable to gain weight on her own. So they ended up doing a muscle biopsy, but usually they wouldn't have done it that young. Um, and, you know, as hard as it was to hear the news, uh, honestly, my first reaction was, well, she could still be in the Special Olympics. Um, and that's just, that's just how I, um, you know, kind of dealt with it. And honestly, at this point, there's sometimes I'm like, well, maybe I should say it was more dramatic than that, that I was crying and there was tears. But honestly, that's just, you know, my approach at the time was like, okay, well, we'll figure it out. And I mean, not that every moment and every step of the journey has been easy, like not at all, but um, that was just kind of my response and, and kind of, I think what um, kind of set the tone for her whole life and the whole journey. Um, and, and there's been a lot of searching of how did I get that, you know, response? Was that something I was taught? Is that something I innately just had? And, you know, as we continue to talk through coaching and stuff, I'll kind of elaborate on it, but um, that kind of in a nutshell is um, Noelle's birth story. I, yeah, I mean, I think that's like the secret. I had um, a very similar reaction to, to our diagnosis of Down syndrome. I said, okay, what do I do next? Um, and I have thought a lot about that too. Is that just my personality? Is it something I was taught? Um, and I think I know the answer for myself, um, but I think there's so much to learn from somebody like you that has then created that experience into a business. Um, so that's really, really neat. Do you think, I'm so fascinated by the maturity because how old were you when you had her? I had just turned uh, 22 
Okay. Or wait, no, actually I was 21. So I was 21 when I found out I was pregnant. And so I was still 21 when I had her because she was born in November and I didn't turn 22 till that February. Uh, and yes, I look back and I'm surprised at my maturity as well, because now I'm, you know, much older with, well, when I had my, my, um, my younger two kids, I'm like, I don't even know how I did it because <laughs> there's days when I'm like, I don't even know what I'm doing, but yes, there was uh, a maturity I didn't even realize I had at the time. Right. I mean, and did you realize that you were growing up as it was happening? I do. I do know that the moment I, um, you know, I got the test that said I was pregnant, it was like, okay. Um, and I mean, I've had, I had a different experience than most because my older brother, um, him and his girlfriend ended up um, getting pregnant in high school. And so I learned early on what you know, what I didn't want to do. And yeah, I ended up doing it because I didn't want to have kids early. But um, so I think having walked that and seen it firsthand, I knew right away, it was like, okay, this is what I'm doing. And um, I've got to, I've got to be there, you know, for my child and I've got to do it. And even, even in a bad relationship, it was like, I've got to do my best to try to make it work uh, for, you know, for my baby. And yeah, it just kind of was the there wasn't any other choice in it. And then when I found out she had a disability, it was even more. Um, I know this is so crazy, but like I'm somebody who does really well in tough situations and in hard times. And I do look back now and I wonder, would I have been the same mom if Noelle didn't have all the needs? You know, I think it actually would have been harder on me. There would have been a whole lot more uh, room for selfishness and room for, you know, not wanting to grow up. And as crazy it is, it, as it is, it was a blessing in disguise for me to have, you know, such a, you know, extreme uh, kind of version of motherhood at such a young age. I love that. And I want to explore that more. Um, and maybe we will as we continue to talk, but um, I think that's so true. I, I say that all the time that I feel like having Jack made me such a better person has really developed my perspective and my intuition and my empathy so much more significantly. Um, and so I love that you said you didn't have room for selfishness. You didn't have room to um, continue as an adolescent that's probably pretty egotistical. Um, I mean, you know, college athlete. Um, and so, you know, can you really pinpoint ways that you had to kind of abandon this prior life and really dedicate yourself to her health and well-being and development? Yes. Yeah, so Noelle was flight for life the day after she was born. Uh, to She was born in a small town hospital. Uh, we're in Colorado. So she was born in a small town hospital. Uh, hospital and it was very clear early on that they didn't know what they were doing so we had had a talk that she needed to go somewhere else and at the same time we had made that decision the doctors walked into the room and said we think she needs to be seen somewhere else and we're like so do we and they're like well the fight for life is on the way and in that moment they're like well we don't know if you're going to be able to ride the plane or not with her 
Uh, you just have to wait till the um, pilot gets here and ask. And there was that moment of like, I can't not ride this plane. It was a four and a half hour drive. Uh, and I was like, I have to be on that plane. And it was, I think even that moment of like, okay, like I can't be like a bawling, you know, like a bawling or a hormonal crazy person. I have to be, uh, show them that like, I, I can ride this plane. I can be there. I mean, I just had a C-section and I remember just waiting for that pilot and being like, okay, I have to do whatever it takes to get on that plane. And um, thankfully the pilot walked in and I asked him if I could ride with, and he said, yep, you can. And um, I, I was just like, okay. And uh, there was a flight for life nurse. And she told me, she's like, I never freak out ever. So if you see me freaking out, you know, something's wrong. And I'm like, okay, sounds good. And when you descend into Denver over the mountains, um, there is so much turbulence and let alone on a tiny little Learjet. So we start descending and I'm in my seat looking around, you know, Noelle's in her isolate and I'm looking at that nurse and she's just charting. And so I'm like, okay, we're good. Cause she, <laughs> she said, we're good. And even in that moment, it was like, I had to choose if I was going to let my emotion take over my fear and anxiety, or if I was going to look ahead, like to that person who was, um, you know, constant. And that's what I did. I'm like, okay, I, I don't know what's happening. I don't trust all of this, but this person is leading the way and I'm trusting her. And, um, and then, you know, it was, it was from the beginning. Noelle was at, um, children's for the first two weeks of her life. And that in and of itself is a whole experience of, you know, learning how to do all of the things and, and, and back and forth. And so as much as I, like I said, back to the whole TLC thing, I imagined my story of motherhood was going to be sitting at home, nursing a baby. It wasn't, you know, it was sitting in a hospital room and it was appreciating the little things. And if you've ever been in the NICU, you know, there's so many little things that literally just like melt your heart. And I remember one thing was I got a paper bag with some peaches and a spoon and some snacks. And inside it had a little note and it said from a family who's been in your shoes, who knew how important it was to have, you know, to be thought about and have a snack. And it was just like, oh my gosh. And so those little moments, as much as I never planned on experiencing them, those started to shape me and uh, make me appreciate this journey I was on, even though it wasn't what I, you know, had originally planned. So it's, it's like from the, the very beginning, there was always the option, I think, to choose to appreciate it or the option to just be so mad about it. And thankfully I chose the option of just, you know, appreciating it and realizing that it was going to refine me and make me a better person. Yeah. I mean, and that's, it's, I think the neat thing about this is that even in that moment, you were learning how to refine yourself while also caring and advocating for another person for this really deserving baby that just burst into your life. Um, and that is something that we as parents of kids with disabilities don't oftentimes do supernaturally. Um, and so I was just like writing down, um, it's a choice. It is truly a choice. There is this framework shift where you have to think, okay, I'm going to be deliberate about this positive approach that I can take and this growth opportunity that can happen. And so like the actual positivity itself is a choice and the like letting go, you know, you talked about turning her over to the doctors and saying, okay, they know what's best. 
that's a choice. And sometimes we feel like we need to control everything. Um, the, 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 like, I'm going to learn everything I can learn is a choice. You know, so many times, like we just want to kind of let things, this is not me, but we as a community <laughs> want to let things kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm not, I, I just can't learn about that. I can't learn about school or I can't learn about whatever. It's too much, but there's a choice that you can make to say, I'm going to dive into this and I'm going to learn. And then the last thing you said was that awareness of like the small things and um, the opportunity, the community, um, the beauty that exists, whether it's directly related to Noel or Noat or not, <laughs> Noel or Noat, um, that could be a new hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> you could like break down stereotypes with a Noel or Noat. Does Noel, can she ice skate or Noat? Yes. Well, yeah, she can. Um, I like it. So... <laughs> But, you know, I mean, that that awareness of the beauty of life is such a gift that's so cool. I just, I, like, as you were saying that, I was breaking it down into a lesson for myself, and I love it. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you're, I love that your first kind of two advocacy pieces of, A, she needs to go someplace else, and B, I need to be on that airplane were like slam dunks. You didn't even have to really work. But I'm sure there was a time that it set in that, oh gosh, I'm really going to have to advocate for her. Can you kind of tell us about that? Oh yeah. So that came early on. Uh, so when Noelle got discharged from children, she had a feeding tube, uh, like an NG tube and oxygen. And that was still in that place of like, uh, I don't know if it's denial or hope or what it is, but it was like, she's going to be fine. She's going to be fine. It was a rough delivery. She's going to be fine. And yet I still innately knew in my spirit, there was something, you know, very wrong. And I know that's probably something most uh, parents who have a child with a disability or a diagnosis can understand. It's like, you're living in both of these worlds of like hoping that the doctors are wrong, hoping that you're not actually going to see it. And yet kind of knowing that there is something. And uh, so I had to try to get her to gain weight. Um, her pediatrician took the feeding tube out very early, which of course we thought at the time, like, yes, this is a great thing. And then I spent the next four months, like trying with everything in me to get her to just eat a tiny bit, a tiny bit. And we had nurses who came, I think it was once a week to weigh her, um, like to do well checks in the home. And every week it was just it was almost like my ability as a mom was on the line, you know, like, was she going to make the weight or wasn't she? And did I do enough or didn't I? And it was just constant. And it would feel like, you know, if, if she gained weight, yes, it was a victory. I did great. If she didn't, it was like, oh gosh, I'm, you know, I just can't do it. And it's like, of course we all feel that at times as parents, it's just sometimes we see it more often when we have a kid with a disability because it's like, like I said, it's just this constant report card of how are you doing? And uh, it was like at four months, we, I came to go uh, see my family uh, and they live in Blackhawk, which is closer to Denver. And she just wasn't doing well. She wasn't eating. I could tell she was lethargic. So I took her into children's to, to get checked out and she had lost nine ounces in a week. Um, and I'm just like, you know, it doesn't seem big for, you know, it's probably typical of like some kids, but for her, I was like, oh my gosh, this is months of work. And um, at, at that hospitalization, they were about to discharge her. They were about to just send her home. And I had to put my foot down, you know, and that was one of those moments when I was crying and, you know, just like 
it wasn't the, the most eloquent side of advocacy. And I, somebody walked in the room and I was like, you have to do something. Like you have to, we can't leave. And this was after sitting in a room for basically two days with nobody doing anything. And you know, you think people are doing stuff. You think somebody must be doing something for you, which no, you're really literally just sitting in a room. Uh, I know that now. And you know, most, most people who've had to be in the hospital often know. And so I, you know, bawling, crying, you have to do something. And so they finally listened to me. And that was when they decided to give her a feeding tube. And um, that's also when they did the muscle biopsy. But I was like, they were ready to just send her home. And I was going to be back to this, like, every single hour, just, you know, overwhelmed with, is she eating? Is she not? And at the time, really what was happening was she was burning more calories than she was consuming because of her muscle, you know, because of her muscular dystrophy. And so she really did need a feeding tube. She couldn't do it on her own. And so that was the first moment of, you know, the advocacy where I had to put my foot down and be like, no, you need to help her. Like, this is not. So it came very early on at, at four months. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people will be able to relate to that because I'm thinking about like a really big time that I had to advocate for Jack. Um, and it was super messy. I mean, I remember saying I got really mad and I was crying and snotting and it was, crazy. And I remember saying there's this room full of 19 other people. Um, it was in an IEP meeting. And I said, I'm so sorry. I don't get mad very often. And so I think I'm having this emotional response because mad isn't something that I feel. And we were just waiting for the paperwork. And I felt like I got to get out of here because I'm making a mess out of myself. But what's interesting is two people have since come like sent me referrals, sent me people they want for me to mentor and that sort of thing and said, you were so eloquent in that meeting and you were, it was so, your passion was so obvious. And I felt like I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Um, and now I'm able to put it into something that's much more objective for other people and for my own family. But I think a lot of us start in that like messy, um, crying kind of phase. And we realize we need something that's more effective, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So where then did you get those tools to advocate in an objective manner? Oh man, I would just say it, it was refined through the fire. It was those little situations continually happening over and over and over. And it was that maturity uh, you know, like I, when I first had her, there was a lot of maturity that came and then there was a lot of maturity that was learned over time. And I think it's, it's understanding the dynamic of, you know, hospital and doctors. I mean, I learned to speak doctor. So that way I would be, uh, um, you know, I, I would be seen as not an equal, but at least it is an intelligent part of the conversation. Right. <laughs> um, at one point, Noelle was in the hospital for four months straight. So there was a lot of opportunity to um, <clears throat> learn to speak the language of the hospital, a lot of opportunity to learn to advocate. Uh, and, you know, when you're consumed with that, I mean, I didn't leave. I, I slept day in, day out in the hospital. So it was like I was, you know, immersed in this culture. And I think a lot of it, too, is trial and error. It was, you know, those moments when we do break down and we're crying and all of that. And even if our message gets across and even when people, you know, give us the, the pat on the back for doing it, when we walk away and then how we feel about it, 
And when we feel like, oh my gosh, I feel like I just threw a fit in front of all these people. And even though they finally heard me, it's like, okay, next time I want to do it better. And I think it's, it's doing it better for ourselves because living in that place is not easy by any means. Living in that place of having to advocate. And there are times, there's still times when, you know, adv advocacy does look messy because you can't get your point across any other way, unfortunately. Right. Um, but it's finding better ways along the way. And when you say IEP meetings, oh my gosh, I'm sure that brings up so so many emotions for all of us. So many different, you know, times of like, oh, I did this one good, and then oh, this one I did not do good. <laughs> um, but so I do think that there are, unfortunately, there's moments where advocacy has to look messy because otherwise people aren't going to listen to you because they don't live your life. They don't really know as much as doctors or um, educators think that they know they don't come home with us. They don't, they haven't walked with our children every day, day in and day out. And so as much as their professional, you know, opinion is trying to understand you, sometimes it does take some messiness, but when those times are fewer and farther between and we can still advocate in better ways, I think that helps us. It helps our child, uh, you know, it helps them get what they need. Cause we can't just cry and scream and throw a fit in every appointment. Nobody's gonna even listen to us. So I think refining those advocacy skills are what we have to do for our kids and for ourselves. Cause like I said, I, I don't wanna live in that all the time. It's, and um, my, somebody told me this recently. They're like, I don't like how I get, like, I feel ugly. Like, that's not me. And it's like, yeah, to avoid that ugly feeling um, is really good. And like you said, when you're like, you felt like you were so angry and mad and it's almost that ugly feeling. It's like, we can advocate. And sometimes we do have to, you know, get stern, but the goal I think should be to not have to do it in that, uh, like when we walk away, we don't have to feel that ugly side of us, you know? So beautiful. <laughs> so many good little nuggets of information in that. And I couldn't agree with you anymore. That's the way that I teach my um, students. That's the way I advocate for my clients and my law practice. Um, and I think it's so, so effective. Um, so I guess that eventually le led to you thinking, huh, I'm pretty good at this. Maybe I should try coaching, right? So tell us about your journey as a coach. Yeah, so my journey as a coach really does stem um, from athletics, first and foremost. And that does, uh, the more I have really, you know, thought about this concept of coaching, I really realized that, yes, um, there's a lot of mindset that I have that was just given that I just have always had a an ability to reframe. Uh, and I do think that that's a very strong mindset ability. I can reframe anything, you know, no matter how bad a situation is, I can look at it and be like, okay, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to see it this way. And that's something I've always innately had, but then it was really refined through athletics. Um, the first time I started playing uh, sports was in seventh grade when my family moved from Albuquerque to, to Colorado. And uh, they had, they offered, it was a really tiny school. So they offered sports class to middle schoolers. And I'm like, what sports class? Okay. And you actually took it as the last hour of your day. And it was your, you know, athletic practice. And we did volleyball, basketball, and track. So I remember walking in 
the, it was mid November. So I walked into people doing layups. I don't even know if I had ever dribbled a basketball before this, but I'm just like, okay. And I was just looking at the people in front of me and dribbling and doing my best to attempt layups. And it was very early on in athletics that I saw, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I saw the power that a coach has over somebody's life and the influence that they have. <clears throat> and I came from, um, a family very emotionally disconnected, very devoid of very, um, you know, positive things or just affirmation or encouragement. So when I found somebody who was encouraging me because I could dribble a basketball or because I could play defense so well, it, it really just spoke to my heart and it really started to make me want to do better and do more things. And so it really was in seventh grade that I knew I wanted to coach. Like there was no doubt in my mind. And um, it never wavered all through all through high school sports. And I had, I always joke because we never brought home a state trophy. We never had a winning season, but I had some amazing coaches. And I come from a long line of amazing coaches. And actually two of my high school coaches still coach to this day. Um, and I am a, a varsity basketball coach. And I actually have coached against my former high school basketball coach. And um, being able to do that is such an incredible um, opportunity. Also very intimidating because I'm like, do I beat him or what do I do? Uh, right now, our record is like one in one. So, you know, it's left Who to won? be decided. Oh, you and uh, your we, coach, your, your record is yeah. one in one. Okay, I like it. That's yep, nice so we, we Yeah, we scrimmaged them once and beat them. And then um, in a you know, regular season game, we beat them. And then this last season, they beat us. So this year, we're okay. coming back. <laughs> okay, okay, that's good. They're coming for you, coach. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so I was actually um, at, um, in college majoring in coaching when I, uh, when I found out that I was pregnant with Noelle. And obviously, I never had the opportunity to go back to school after I had her. Um, and so... It was once I got pregnant with Macy, so Noelle was seven, um, there was actually a coaching job and I applied for it in our community. It said it was at a small Christian school and over the phone, I'm talking to the athletic director and he said, well, wait a minute, when did you play? And I told him, he's like, I was coaching at that time. And he's like, wait, are you a short brunette guard? And I was like, yes. He's like, oh, I totally remember you. And so um, my tenacity and just who I was, the fire that I brought as an athlete um, was something he remembered over the phone. And over the phone, basically, he gave me the job because he knew who I was as an athlete and knew what I would bring um, as a coach. And so that's really how I got my first professional um, coaching job. And from that moment on, like knowing that a coach can help take somebody, this is what the definition of coach was, um, you know, a coach in the old days was, you know, the buggy, the carriage that took people there, the coach, and it really takes somebody from where they are to where they want to go. And being able to do that in people's lives is really my passion and what I want to do. Um, I've done it in high school athletes and seeing them go from, you know, this shy freshman who's very unsure to a college athlete has been an amazing opportunity. And over the last few years, I've um, you know, taken professional coaching and been able to realize, oh, I can do this for adults too now. Like now I can do it 
it's one thing to be able to do it for somebody, you know, in a high school setting and through sports, but now to offer it to people in life. And once I was walked through mentorship and coaching myself, it was like, duh, of course I need a coach. Like I know what it's done in my life. Like, could you imagine a basketball team without a coach? Like they wouldn't get very far. And it was kind of like, I had that revelation in my life. Like, well, no wonder I'm not getting farther than I want. I need help. I need a coach. I need accountability. And so it's like, um, as much as I've done like a lot on my own and I've kind of, it's like almost all these loose ends that I, you know, am good at in these different areas. A coach just kind of wraps that all together and helps you to put them all together and move forward, you know, with it, with it all in, in line, instead of just feeling like you're kind of out here floating on your own. It's that accountability and that help to continue to move you forward. Yeah. And that's, I mean, there's so much value in that. Um, and I, growing up as an athlete, um, felt really connect to that concept. My um, brother swam, I was injured in high school, so I wasn't able to swim in college, but um, my brother did. And um, when he graduated from college, he was like, this will be the first time since I was four years old that I haven't had a coach. And so he got a, oops. Sorry, my Siri just picked up. Um, <laughs> and so when he graduated from college, he got a dog and he named him coach because he was like, mm. how am I going to live without a coach? You know, so um, yeah. that definitely kind of rings true to me. I imagine there are some themes that kind of come up in the human experience. Um, I wonder if you could share with us maybe one or even two different themes that come up as you're coaching adults and um, or if there's like common pointers that you think everybody could benefit from as they navigate the stresses of adult life. Yeah, it's funny you say the, uh, the stresses of adult life because I think the common theme uh, for anybody goes back to our childhood and goes back to our little kid, um, you know, kind of voice or who we were as a child and how we started to cope in the world and those strategies that we um, had to have at the time because we were kids and we didn't have any other options, you know, so they became our coping mechanisms. We also call that our ego. And that's what took care of us then. And that's what protected us. But unfortunately, as adults, we don't even realize it, but we're still living out of those same coping mechanisms, but they don't serve us because we're not a little child who needs to be protected, who needs to, you know, uh, and, and also, you know, if you think of your own kids, it's like, sometimes kids just perceive things not the best way. Like, you know, maybe we perceive something to be different than it was. Um, this is funny, but my, my mother-in-law told me the other day that as a child, she went to go see um, her great grandma in a nursing home and her, um, she was like, she was retaining a lot of fluid and everything. And so her grandma or her mom kept telling her like, yeah, grandma's just blown up. Like she's just a balloon. Like she's just, and so this was a word that her mom was using. And then when she saw as a little kid, she's like, my grandma's a balloon, you know? And so it's just, could you imagine what she thought when she walked in and who knows? I don't know what the grandma actually looked like, but it's like, as a child, we just, you know, we only can understand so much. And so it's like, even though we were protecting ourselves and we created this, maybe we did perceive things in the wrong way. Maybe we did have 
we defended ourselves more than we needed to or whatever it may be. But if we're still living out of those same things as an adult, that's why, you know, we're struggling in our marriages or why we're struggling with relationship or whatever, because we're still using those same coping mechanisms and those strategies that we had as a child. And now they don't serve us. And I think that is a very universal, I would say, all of us struggle with that. And, you know, and it's like, is this serving me? Why am I, why am I protecting myself this way? Why, why, you know, my ego, why is it coming up this way? And it's like, cause we didn't go back to that, you know, little kid version of yourself and kind of, you know, uncover it and unpack it. And that's what we always do in like our second or third session is go back to that and start to unpack it. And one thing my coach asked me, which I think this is so powerful, is imagine yourself, imagine yourself as the seven-year-old version of Tina. And he's like, you have a seven-year-old, you know, Macy, imagine Macy living your life when you were a child. And that was what, dang, that really got me. Because it's one thing to think of ourselves, but it's another thing to think of your child living your own childhood. And what did that look like? You know, in good, bad, ugly, indifferent, you got to start from there <clears throat> to kind of think about like, okay, how did I get to where I'm at now? Um, and that was really, I think the thing, especially because I'm, um, I don't know if you do Enneagram at all, but like I'm a seven on the Enneagram and we just try to avoid pain at all costs. Right. So for me, it's like, I, I didn't think I had a hard childhood. I don't think it was painful until I looked at it through that lens of, what would it look like if Macy lived my childhood? And then it was like, oh gosh. And I think that's really, um, you know, a common thing that we all need to, um, to reconcile is, is our, our childhood and how that impacts our adulthood. That is so enlightening and something I haven't thought about it. Like the way you just walked us through that will make me think all day. That was super, super helpful and powerful. And I have to say, when you first started talking, I was like, yeah, that's like my inner badass. And then the more you started talking, I was like, oh, <laughs> I have to think a little on that. Um, gosh, that is so, so helpful. And, you know, I, I think particularly we as parents of children that have disabilities, um, really get kind of stripped of a lot of our defenses. And so when we're stripped of our defenses, we probably do revert back to that ego, to that original um, personality, those original personality traits, because they are comfortable. That's what's been with us the longest. Um, and I definitely see myself going back to that version of myself when I am um, most raw, when life has really kind of stripped away um, any intentionalism that I can have. And so um, that really makes me think a lot about self-care and how I need to protect myself so that I can show up to be the best me and not show up to be the seven-year-old me, um, who was pretty boisterous. <laughs> Tina, this is amazing. I cannot wait for you to come back for a second episode. Um, man, we are making some good progress. The next time we get together, um, we are, if you'll come back for a second episode, um, I would love to kind of dig more into kind of that chaotic life of parents of children with disabilities. So um, let's take a break here and promise an episode number two coming up soon. <laughs>